the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. A producer's job is, obviously, first and foremost, to act as a supervisor over the process of recording an album. A producer, a good one anyway, can also act as a sounding board, a babysitter of grown adults, a therapist, a jukebox, a friend. A good producer can either set the tone of a recording session or hang back and see what develops. And an amazing producer knows how to tell the difference. Booker T. Jones is, obviously, first and foremost, the leader of the MGs, one of the best, most well-known musical ensembles in history. He and his bandmates have written, recorded, and played on some of the most memorable, distinctive, and popular songs of the 20th century. Booker T. Jones is also an amazing producer. Aside from producing albums for the MGs, he's worked with Otis Redding, Willie Nelson, Neil Young, and Bill Withers. Even though he produced just the one album with Bill, it was his debut album and the album that the rest of Bill's career would launch from, and an experience that would translate its own sense of peace onto the classic that we've been discussing for three episodes so far. In this, the fourth and final episode of the Opus's Look Back at Just As I Am, we'll talk about Booker T, the producer, the Zen master of whatever recording studio he's ever been in charge of. And we'll look at why the pairing of Bill Withers' songs and Booker T. Jones's mind were a match made in soul music heaven. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins. And this is the Opus. listening to this podcast or any podcast dealing with mid-20th century soul music, you're probably already pretty well versed in who Booker T. Jones is. But just in case, here's a refresher. Booker T. is a multi-instrumentalist. He's best known for his work on the keyboard or the organ. 
He was a child prodigy, and he got into the music business at 16 years old and formed the MGs as the house band for Stax Records just the next year, in 1962. By the time Booker T. and Bill Withers met, Booker had been making music professionally for eight years and was brought in to helm Withers' debut album despite being five years younger than the new man on the block. John Batiste, who has his own Booker T. thing going on, says this about what happens when someone who was born to make music meets someone who made himself into a music maker. But when you have somebody like Booker T. who, you know, we know him on the organ, but he could play every instrument. You know what I mean? Like, he could play woodwinds, he could play brass, he could play strings. You know, obviously he played the organ. And he could do it from a young age. He grew up in a, in, a, in a whole environment of music at a time where, you know, you had black music, black social music, church music, dance music, all of the different forms of marching band music, you know, it, it, all these different things that he grew up in the middle of. And then you had this this desire for the public to to hear these kind of sounds in a popular music context. And and then you have an artist like Bill Withers. It's just a supernova. The combination of having that type of musician coming from that kind of cultural pedigree, that level of natural ability and craftsmanship, and the opportunity to then use that in the studio to craft a record with a once-in-a-generation artist like Bill Withers. We rarely have all of those things line up. You know, it, it's like what happened when when Questlove and um, and D'Angelo made Voodoo, or like it, it just is rare that that happens where the artist and the musician of those type of pedigrees come together in popular music. You're going to hear the name Clarence Avant a few times this episode. He was an executive at Sussex Records who had gotten hold of Bill's demos and just like needed to record them properly. And before he knew it, Bill Withers was getting called in to Conway Recording Studio to record his album. Andy Green from Rolling Stone magazine says that Booker T knew what he had on his hands from the get-go. The, the unsung hero of all of this is, is, like, is like Clarence Avant of Sussex, who heard these demos. And he's like, I need to record this man. And then and, and he hired Booker T. He heard the genius of these demos also. And he made the crucial call of like, you know what? I'm going to devote my time to this factory worker. And I'm going to bring in Stephen Stills on guitar and all of these amazing players. And we're going to make these songs great. And so this guy who was still working at a factory, who was on the cover of the record, still holding his actual lunch pail, a guy with no money was in a studio with Booker T. Jones and Stephen Stills and all these great people recording these songs. And it's because everybody saw the talent. You can't hear Ain't No Sunshine and not think like, oh my God, who is this guy? Let's make this great. I spoke to musician Jose James, who once got to interview Booker T. and asked him about the Withers Sessions. So in a way... It's kind of like I got to interview Booker T and ask him about the Withers Sessions. What? Oh, I'm uh, I'm getting word that that's not how it works. 
So here's Jose James. Clarence Avon, it, it, it called him and said, I got this new singer for you. His name is Bill Withers. I'm going to send him down to the studio for audition, you know? And he was like, okay, cool. He said Bill pulled up in like a, a pickup truck with these like dirty, dusty, broken boots, came in and had like a, a, like a huge folder full of just like, like tattered loose leaf paper. And he said it was like, like hundreds of them, like two to 300, just a mess, you know? And he said, hear my songs. And he was just like, man, okay. <laughs> and like a guitar, he said the guitar was like missing strings and stuff. He was like, it was like beyond country, you know? And he said, he just said, hear my songs. And he looked and they were just kind of like lyrics with some like chords under him and stuff, you know? Not like lead sheets, but just like his, his diary, basically. Mm coffee stain and stuff, you know, and he said, well, which one do you want to hear? And he was like, I don't know, man, they're your songs. Give me, just do the first one, the one on top. And the first song was Ain't No Sunshine. And he said he sat down on a stool and just started playing that song, just him and guitar. And he was like, he's like, Jose, he did not get through that song before I was on the phone calling up Stephen Stills and, you know, the band, like, you got to come hear this dude because I've just discovered, like, the next genius, you know what I'm saying? And he said it was, like, a, a fascinating thing because he set everything up and he said the story's true, you know? Like, he showed up, he pulled aside and said, hey, man, where's the singer, you know? And, like, he was like, you're the singer, man. You know, like, what are you talking about? He's like, no, I can't do, I can't sing these songs. He literally just thought he had signed a deal to, like, do a Frank Ocean. Like, here's my song. You know, somebody else is going to sing the song. And, he, you know, like you said, Stephen Stills was on it in Grand Nash, I guess, was next door and came in and, and convinced him to do his own session, which is, like, who, who gets a record deal? <laughs> And doesn't want, doesn't want to sing their own song. You can't make this stuff up. And I like I, when I first read that story, I thought like this can't be true, really. <laughs> but yeah, Booker T said, man, he was so humble, and never considered himself a good singer, you know. And and it's kind of interesting because Nina Simone was the same way, and Nat King Cole was the same way. Um, so I think there is something to that when you come to storytelling from a, a, a different vantage point and you're not trying to be a star but even Stephen Stills and Duck Dunn and Al Jackson Jr. they're nothing without you know this the actual songs the compositions the arrangements the stories the feel the instrumentation and Aloe Black has thoughts on why all of those things work so well on Just As I Am or Booker T uh, being the producer, using acoustic instruments to, for the most part, all was, was, you know, kind of the fabric of that sound and why it can, it can stand the test of time, you know. Some synthesizers don't feel like they're forever, you know, and to avoid using anything that might have been coming in during that time, I think 
he was he was better for it. You know, I I remember either hearing hearing a story about record labels wanting him to to add horns and trumpets and everything to his his music, and I I think at he felt it wasn't him. Horns and trumpets probably signaled something more flashy than what he wanted to present. So he was conscious of it, and I think also you know, he recognized that there was something in the way that his music was produced that allowed him to be able to just sit at a guitar, at his own guitar, and do an acoustic version of it without the rest of the instrumentation. It would still have that feeling, the genuine feeling of the song, of the recording from the album. When I need Some affection You're not there I close my eyes And you Lose my recollection The feeling that Just As I Am conveys The feeling that any album conveys starts in the studio. And that studio vibe can start with the producer. It's a lot like basketball. Stay with me. I don't think I'm about to say anything too radical here besides you can like music and sports, you know. So a band is the team and each person has the position that they play, doing the job that that position requires. When they're on the court, or on stage, that's years of practice making itself practical. In the gym or the studio, the coaching staff or production team are there to make it so that what they bring to tape or the game is as good as it can be. And your head coach or producer has built an entire ethos, a whole strategy around their team. With all of that, may I posit that Booker T. Jones is the Phil Jackson of the recording studio. Hold on one second. So, like, listen, he has an air of this this calm excellence about him. He's a proven and respected talent who was a player and brings that experience to his coaching life. And he absolutely, positively brings out greatness in those around him. Speaking of greatness, Jim Keltner, legendary drummer. I'm not using that word lightly. He's worked with a couple of Beatles, a Rolling Stone, all of the Wilburys, and like so many more. I promise you that if you own anything resembling a respectable record collection, you have several instances of Jim Keltner's drumming in your stacks. Now, 50 years ago, he played on just one track on Just As I Am, Better Off Dead, the melancholy groover at the end of the album. And though he was just needed for the one day, he was more than happy to do it. Booker T was a hero of his. Booker is like one of the sweetest, soft-spoken people you'll ever meet. He just, he just was like completely the opposite of, uh, 
of what you might have thought, you know, a dynamic uh, young brother like him, would, you know, top of the world, one of the great bands of all time. And, all. you know, he just was this humble, sweet person. But when he sat down to play, it was so easy to play with him. That's the, the wonderful thing about uh, great, really, truly great players. Uh, if you get a chance as a drummer, you get a chance to play with the, the great ones, you realize that you're not a bad player yourself because they bring it out, bring it out in you, you know. If you play on records, you end up playing on, on uh, a lot of different kind of records with a lot of different kind of artists. And no matter whether the artist is famous or whatever, uh, if he delivers, if he, if he can really turn it on, then the, the player that's there to, you know, hired player to play on the record has something to rise to. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's great. There's nothing better than that because that's when you're listening to the playback and you're thinking, wow, this is good. This is good. I'm sounding good. They're sounding good. You know, that's what it's about. And uh, and Booker is one of those guys, you know. And Duck Dunn, I mean, that was a dream. Booker T, as a player, is, is just nobody better. And as a producer, a lot of producing is about having uh, the people have faith in you. And, uh, you know, his track record and everything. And the way he, you know, his, uh, you could say, bedside manner in the studio, you know, was so good. I mean, everybody felt great. You, you just, you know, that's, that's, what you, that's what you want. And, uh, you know, having said that, there are times when it's good and necessary even for you to have big-time tension. In, in the room, uh, I, I've experienced it all. I can say, and and I would much rather have it be like Booker, you know, somebody you know, nice and and all that. I I love that. Uh, who wouldn't love that? I guess he's he's kind of a one of those people that if you're working for him, you know it's going to be good. She couldn't stand me anymore, so she just took the kids and went. You see, I've got a drinking problem All the money that we had I spent Now I must die by my own hand Cause I'm not man enough to live alone Hey, she's better off without me And I'm better off dead now that she's gone I honestly could have spoken to Jim Keltner all day. We could have a long-running series of podcasts just about all the songs and albums and tours that he's done. And it's always really cool to hear people whose work you love talking about the people whose work they love. And it was especially cool to hear one of the most prolific and talented guys out there talking about the Just As I Am sessions as a participant, but also as a fan himself. So Better Off Dead, as I mentioned, closes the album, but it was one of the first to be recorded. The next day, the late Al Jackson Jr. was to come in for the rest of the album, and because Jim Keltner wanted to see one of his favorites in action, he also got to witness the birth 
of a classic. The song that I played on that day was a song called Better Off Dead. That was, uh, obviously he liked that little song, you know, and, it, and it, it went on the record good and everything. But then I just kept hearing talk toward the end of the session. And so maybe at, at midday or so, I, I heard that Al Jackson was coming in for the next song. And so I was beside myself. I said to Booker, um, can I come in uh, tomorrow morning and, um, and check out the session? And he said, yeah, it's going to be at 10 a.m. And um, I was there sharp sitting there waiting, and in comes a long-haired young guy <clears throat> from SIR, and he sets up these uh, generic, you know, SIR rental set. Mm-hmm. I think it was a Silver Sparkle drum set, and um, he just set them up kind of loosely, you know, and um, so I'm thinking, um, wow, those are Al Jackson's drums. And they said, no, that's, those are from SIR. And I'm like, oh, no, they, no kidding. So he was playing on a rental set. So then Al comes in, and, and he kind of, he, I thought he was a little bit late for the session. So he came in, dressed really nice with a, a, a like a, a blazer, a, a nice white shirt without a tie. And uh, he just looked like, you know, like a guy, you know, from an office gig or something, you know, that, that took off for lunch. And uh, real good-looking guy, and he sat behind the drums, and I was just blown away that he didn't put a key to the drums. He didn't really move them around very much, and he had a pair of sticks with him. And he sat down, and they started playing. And they had it within a couple of takes. Ain't no sunshine. And the you know sitting there listening for the first time to that song, and the performance of Bill Withers, and you know my greatest hero uh, Al Jackson playing the drums, and um, you know Booker produced. I mean it just it was like a dream, and uh, and I just never forgot that. I uh, I I wanted to uh, speak to Al so badly. But I couldn't. I just I froze up, and so I, I couldn't I couldn't talk to him, oh. and, which was really a shame. Uh, my friend Steve Jordan and I talk about this kind of stuff all the time because he was a huge uh, Al Jackson fan, and um, there I was. I had the opportunity, you know, to talk to him, and I I just couldn't. <laughs> um, but that that was the highlight of my participation on that record was watching them do uh, Ain't No Sunshine. Wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gone to stay Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away And I know, I know Booker T 
was an industry vet, a production go-to for label heads, and the leader of one of the best bands soul music would ever produce, all before his 30th birthday. But because he's the same kind of regular guy with extraordinary talent that Bill Withers was, it made him the first and exact right choice to lead the 96 Bulls, I mean, sorry, the Just As I Am sessions, to the finals. Phil Cook of His Golden Messenger and Grandma's Hands Band explains it all like this. I think that Booker T was kind of the Bill Withers of the organ. There's a, there's a thing for me that's just like, you can, you can listen to any Booker T record, right? And even like their take on the Beatles when they cover the Beatles and like all these other things. And there's a clarity and there's a directness to his playing that seems lyrical and feels like it just, it, it is accessible. It's not, it doesn't, like the priority of his playing isn't virtuosity. It's like, communication it's connection so what i love about that it's like it's sort of like when i hear nothing he plays like is like super virtuosically fancy like if you're like talking about like in the organ arena of like billy preston Mm -hmm. and of like some of these like other church things where it's just like really flashy really like dazzly at when it can be i just feel like you know you listen to his organ in like green onions or something like that where it's just like you can just sing his organ lines Mm -hmm. it's singable and i love that you know how accessible like watch any performance of bill withers playing acoustic a mic he had brought a case into the show you know he like (laughs) that dude showed up for loading like brought an acoustic guitar case like nothing was plugged in it was a mic on the guitar a mic on his voice and he played bar chords like like dude is not playing whatever he's playing very direct simple it's just framework basic framing a house that he fills the rest of it in with his personality and his voice and his message and all of that stuff is it's like a it's perfect for me it's just like I think it's just direct and it's accessible in a way that also his lyrics are that also his music is and it's a great partnership when you hear just these these two men that are just at the forefront of just like all these intersections of American music happening. And, you know, even just by nature of just like the church organ and the folk acoustic guitar coming into a room together, both speaking directly to the American public in a way that just granted access to anyone that was willing to just like listen to it five-year-olds in Wisconsin 40 years later you know what I mean (laughs) everything to like you know like any age on that I just think that like there's you can just see that there's a timeless nature you and I are talking about this record now in 2021 that's the timeless nature too of this where it's like you know um sometimes simplicity and directness like is like the truest resonance that causes the ripples that go out the farthest for the longest time you know what I mean yeah I do I do know what you mean. And I hope you all do too. Thanks for hanging out and learning more about this amazing album with me. And the next time you get a chance to, play it all the way through. Sunday seems like the best day to do that. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins. This has been the Opus. I'll see you next season.
Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska name three bands that aren't the Boss Tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network, 